All right. It should have been enough for us to be convinced of what our position on immigration laws should be as Christians from what I already said from the Bible. And we shouldn't even have to use history. We shouldn't even have to use any additional arguments, but just go to the Bible and draw conclusions from there. And yet I believe God created history to help us understand better, you know, what he said in his word. Of course, if our thinking is based on the Bible, because if our thinking is not based on the Bible, we're not going to be able to understand history. But that's why I started with the Bible. Now that we know what the Bible says about immigration, which is, what was it? Get the government out of the issue of immigration. Let people go free. And borders are for restricting governments, not for restricting individuals. <clears throat> so now we, we will go to the history of immigration laws in the U.S. and the West. And actually, we'll start with the West, uh, the uh, unique civilization ever created in history, unique in, in its beliefs and unique in its prosperity called Christendom. I want to start with a definition of a passport. It's going to be a dictionary definition. Passport, or safe conduct in time of war, a document granted by a belligerent power, a power at, in a war, to protect persons and property from the operation of hostilities. In its more familiar sense, a passport is a document authorizing a person to safely pass out of or into a country or a license or safe conduct to. The person specified therein in authenticating his right to aid and protection. Now listen to this. It's part of that dictionary definition. Although most foreign countries may now be entered without passports, The English Foreign Office recommends travelers to furnish themselves with them as affording a ready means of identification in case of need. <clears throat> now, close your eyes and imagine a world where you could travel to any country without having to carry with yourself any means, means of identification, whether passport, visa, or ID card. Well, in fact, Try to imagine a world where you can drive in your own home state without any means of identification, driver's license, or anything else, if you can. Imagine a world where you don't have to meet the perverts of the Transport Security Administration, the police thugs, the border control bureaucrats, corrupting greedy customs officers, etc., 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 Imagine a world where the government has no means to track your movement. And if they want to stop a criminal from going somewhere, the burden of proof is on them. They need to first provide the court with an incontrovertible proof of committed crime and then do the arrest in such a way that no innocent person's rights are violated. I know it's, it's hard to imagine a world like this, but I'm just asking you, try to imagine it. No roadblocks, no rounding up innocent people to check their papers, etc., etc., etc. Imagine a world 
in which you can freely carry your weapons with you on a plane or a ship or any substance you want or any kind of valuables without any fear that some government crook somewhere may have decided that certain substances or valuables can't cross borders. Imagine a world where you can buy a house or do business or get a job in any place in the world and never see a government bureaucrat or never need to see one or never have to have ID for any of the activities that you have chosen. That, my friends, was the world our ancestors lived in a little over 100 years ago. The quote I gave you was from Encyclopedia Britannica of 1911. Most foreign countries may now be entered without passports. <clears throat> In 1911, a person could travel the world without a pastor, a passport. Well, yeah, without a pastor too. <laughs> if they decided to furnish themselves with a passport, it was to protect them from government thugs, not to make it easier for government thugs to track their movements. Read some fiction of a century ago and pay attention to the way they traveled. They never had to meet customs officers, border control, or experience any other violation of their rights. A German could get on a ship to Mexico, cross over to the Pacific side, take another ship to California, become a gold digger in California, amass a fortune, take his gold and his guns he bought in the United States, and get back to Germany by the same route, and he wouldn't have to declare neither his gold nor his guns at any border whatsoever, nor show any passport, nor even use his real name anywhere. <clears throat> and this actually happened many times. Veracruz was the place where the Germans would land and cross the land to go to the other side and go north to California to dig gold. As long as there was no one to accuse him of any crime to any government, he was left free and unmolested to travel, work, do business, establish contacts, etc., 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 this, my friends, was the world left to us as a legacy from our Christian ancestors. The claims of our modern pagans today that the world a hundred years ago and before was a world of tyranny and oppression are ridiculous. Calvin fled Paris after the so-called affair of the placards in 1534 and safely crossed several, several borders to get to Basel in Switzerland. And he was an outlaw to the French government. In the course of the next several years, Calvin freely traveled between Basel and Switzerland, Ferrara in Italy, and Strasbourg in Germany, and he was even back in Paris for a time, still unarrested and unmolested by the French authorities. And he was an outlaw. 
Two centuries later, Voltaire, under the French so-called absolutist monarchy and tyranny, banned from Paris because his place earned the wrath of the king himself, settled in Geneva, Switzerland. Geneva had a ban on theatrical performances at the time, so Voltaire would cross the French border regularly and stage his plays in Fernay on the French side of the border. Do you hear that? And those were banned by the king himself. He would go to France and stage his place there. Just compare this to what Edward Snowden had to go through when he righteously exposed our wicked, tyrannical government in D.C. And he wasn't even an outlaw. There wasn't even a court procedure against him. We have liberty today. We know nothing about liberty today compared to our ancestors just a hundred years ago. Next time you see a government employee, thank them for your slavery. In fact, next time you see a voter, thank them for your slavery. <clears throat> Even as late as the 1930s, English and American journalists and writers like to make fun of the German phrase, your paper please. As free Christian men, English and Americans could not grasp why a government would force its citizens to spend money to get a passport so that the government can track their movement. Of course, they still thought in terms of the old Christian morality that the ability to move and travel was a basic human right not to be trampled by any government. In Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, the ability to travel and settle and move was a privilege granted by the state. As late as the 1960s, the Rhodesian Air Services, the official uh, airline of Rhodesia, still, had this, uh, uh, still advised their passengers before a flight, that's the flight attendant, to have their revolvers unloaded, their automatic pistols on safety holstered safely away from children, and their guns and rifle, shotguns and rifles unloaded and placed in the overhead compartment. <clears throat> Rhodesia at the time wasn't the backward, racist, socialist, pagan, corrupt, gangster country modern Zimbabwe is. It was a modern, developed, free Christian nation, the economic miracle of the world, keeping a steady pace of economic growth of 7% a year in the midst of a world recession. Yes, this is the world we lost. A legacy of more than a millennium of Christendom. A Christian civilization that started on the ruins of a self-destructed pagan civilization to develop into a civilization that ruled the world and brought the biblical ideas of liberty and justice for all to all corners of the world. The story why we lost it, why we're back to a barbarian world of government oppression is a longer story. Suffice to say uh, here just briefly, the fault lies with us, the Christians for abandoning the comprehensive message of the kingdom of God and focusing our attention on the salvation of our little precious souls, effectively excluding from our preaching more than 99% of, of the gospel of Christ, 
which has to do with subjecting all things to Christ, including the civil government. The fault lies with us that we have allowed our pulpits and our churches and seminaries to be filled with men who have preached and administered theological vasectomy in the church. Shrinking the faith of the church to a few propositions of personal salvation and moralism. Effectively abandoning the world to the enemy. But this is a topic of another lecture in another conference. What we want to do here is find out about the history of immigration laws in Christendom, of laws that governments pass to control and track the movements of individuals and groups of people across borders. It is commonly acknowledged today by historians that part of the success of the gospel in the early days of the church were the Roman roads on land and their marine equivalent developed technologies for navigation and safe sea lanes free from pirates. Just a couple generations before Christ, Julius Caesar employed the might of Rome to completely destroy all the pirate fleets and nests in the Mediterranean. So complete was his victory that the effects of it lasted for seven centuries. It wasn't until the emergence of Islam that pirating became a threat to shipping again. His successor, Caesar Augustus, took up the enormous task of building roads for an empire that had grown beyond anything the world had known by that time. The, roads build, the road building office was actually raised to the level in, of, a, of imperial ministry. <clears throat> in fact, even though we don't have direct information of the government budget at the time, given the extensive road building in Augustus's time, it may have well been the largest item in the government budget dur during his reign larger than the military expenses of the empire. I mean, anybody lived in Europe? Anywhere you were in Europe, you were about 20 miles from a Roman road that is still used. And I can tell you, I have seen old Roman bridges near to where I lived where three 18-wheelers can pass on that bridge and it still stands. And in fact, just recently in Bulgaria, they had a lot of rain and floods and so on. On the same river where I remember that bridge, three newly built bridges in the last 30 years collapsed and the Roman bridge is still there. <clears throat> in addition to building government roads, an ancient Roman law was revived in the empire that travelers could freely cross through private land if there was no road on it built and maintained by the property owner. This encouraged large landowners to build and maintain private roads where there were no imperial roads. So extensive was the road system that Dionysius of Halicarnassus, uh, he was a Greek, uh, writing his book Roman Antiquities to reconcile his fellow Greeks to the Roman rule, sets apart the Roman road system as one of the three great accomplish, accomplishments proving the greatness of Rome, together with the aqueducts and the sewer system. These roads wouldn't be of a great use for commerce or for the gospel if the Romans didn't also remove all legal barriers to travel. What before them has been a fragmented world of numerous little states with immigration restrictions against each other and populations tossed around by royal edicts 
Remember how Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians resettled whole nations? Oh, we're going to take the Jews and move them north. Now we're going to take these Medes and we're going to move them south to Egypt. And so on. Under Rome, this territory became a vast stretch of safe and unrestricted, unrestricted travel. Now, of course, the, Roman did, the Romans didn't do it because they valued the individual or, or, or believed in individual liberty, that's for sure. Whatever their motives were, the policy helped the gospel spread like wildfire. in the face of opposition from both the Jews and the Roman state. It is for this reason that Paul was able to travel over 10,000 miles over the course of 20 years. And now, before you say 10,000 miles is nothing, he wasn't in the Chevrolet. <clears throat> At least what is documented in Acts, and who knows how many other undocumented journeys he made. Now that would make it a little mathematics here that will make it 1.6 miles every day if you, we take out the Sabbaths. Given the average speed of traveling at the time, he spent three hours average per day outside the protection of cities. Which makes it a total of 2.5 years in the course of these 20 years outside cities, outside the protection of city walls. And we have not a single account of him being attacked by robbers or stopped by government bureaucrats. Paul's appeal to Caesar in Acts 25 to travel from Judea to Rome is taken as something casual and normal. And we don't see any concerns raised about the difficulties of that long journey to Rome in those days. It was later when the Roman state became increasingly fascist when that restrictions on travel and settling were imposed, first on foreigners and then between the different provinces. The census in, uh, described in Luke 2.1, Luke uh, the, the one-time census, became in the later days of the empire an extensive policy of restricting the movement of whole classes of people for the purpose of farming tax revenues for the state. By that time, the gospel had reached every place in the known world and had even reached the barbarians outside the borders. An open world was an open world for the gospel. And the gospel took full advantage of it. Other religious, ideological, and political influences were also able to take such advantage, and they did to a certain extent. But at the end... The only lasting influence was the gospel. In a world of no borders and free movement, it is the gospel that triumphs on, uh, over its rivals. It was a lesson well learned by the early Christians. So well learned that when Christianity established its hold on Europe after A.D. 500... For almost 1,400 years, Christendom did not institute any policy restricting immigration. Shutting down borders was left to the barbaric pagan world. 
The pagan world had a reason to be afraid of free travel and immigration. For it was the gospel that was the superior spiritual force. China remained a closed society for most of its history, limiting not only immigration of foreigners, but trade with foreigners as well. Japan used its geographical position to establish immigration restrictions of almost complete isolation from the rest of the world. In fact, if you read about those times, the paranoia of China and Japan of anything foreign could be rivaled only by the paranoia of the Greek city-states, another pagan entity, or by the paranoia of modern American churchgoers, another pagan entity. Trade restrictions were instituted by the Muslim world for Christian traders. The pagan tribes to the north and northwest of Christian Europe, what's today Scandinavia or eastern Germany and the Baltic, uh, wouldn't allow any stranger on their territory, which is exactly the same as what missionaries testified of the Amazonian tribes in the 20th century. Remember Bruchko? Anybody read his book? Okay. The Amazonian pagan tribes in, in, in the Amazon had their immigration restrictions as well. In contrast, Christian Europe opened its border to immigration, confident in the power of the message of the gospel. The Byzantine Empire allowed pagan tribes to settle within the borders of the empire, let them organize their own areas of tribal jurisdiction. To those who became Christians, it opened possibilities for political participation. In fact, at least one of the emperors was a Khazar by nationality. The trust in the power of the Christian message and the Christian culture was justified. Politically, the empire disintegrated, but what it left religiously was a strong legacy of Christian culture. So strong, in fact, that several centuries of concentrated efforts by the Ottoman authorities to eradicate Christianity proved fruitless. And eventually the sultans gave up. In the western part of Christendom, the legal principle was established that the non-political members of the society, those that were not nobility, soldiers, or servants of rulers, should be safe from political harassment, including border restrictions. The feudal Europe, remember that feudal Europe with all the little borders? Did you know that peasants could travel through these borders and nobles couldn't? That was Christendom. Imagine a border where you can travel and D.C. politicians can't. <clears throat> this led to some curious moments when after wars or plagues, different principalities actually competed to attract freely traveling peasant families to settle on their lands, to repopulate the land. The restrictions of the time were economic, not political, and an economically free person was allowed to travel anywhere he pleased. It's amazing for us today to read accounts of people who were declared outlaws, as I said, and yet were able to travel extensively without being arrested, some even changing their names to conceal their identity. It was taken for granted in Christian Europe that government agents could not stop a person just on mere suspicion. Within the course of 1,000 years, Christian Europe was transformed from a pagan, barbarian place to a civilized culture where the individual had rights like nowhere else in the world. The Reformation and the wars of the Reformation created another legal precedent 
in concept related to immigration, one that was taken directly from the law of God, cities of refuge, from Numbers 35. It is seldom understood today that the reformers looked at Christendom in general as a civilization of refuge. And therefore the reformed nations as nations of refuge first and foremost. Much has been written by ignorant or biased historians about Geneva of Calvin as a religious city where religious zealots reigned unopposed. The truth is, for most of Calvin's stay in Geneva, the government was in the hands of Calvin's theological opponents, the Libertines, who were practical atheists. Geneva was ridiculed and attacked by its enemies, the Roman Catholic Church, not for its tyranny at the time. As ignorant people today like to believe, but for its excessive liberties. You've got to read cartoons at the time. Geneva is actually ridiculed for too much liberty. And why did Geneva have excessive liberties? Because Genevans considered their city not a bastion of the Reformation, but a city of refuge. A safe ground for those who were fleeing economic distress, political turmoil, plagues, etc. This is why for the period of Calvin's stay in Geneva, the population of the city increased four to five-fold. Mathematically, this would be an increase of seven to eight percent a year in the course of over 20 years. To compare, for the same period, the population of the rest of Europe decreased between a fourth and a third of the population total to, uh, uh, due to wars, plagues, and harsh climate conditions. So this little city of refuge grew four to five-fold at the same time when the world around it shrank by at least a fourth. The other Reformed nations didn't stay idle either. The Netherlands, Scotland, England, and the Calvinist principalities in Germany were actively recruiting immigrants to come to their countries. The fate of the French Huguenots is well known, and their immigration to the Netherlands, England, and North and South Carolina. What is less known is the startling invitation <clears throat> these reformed countries issued to the persecuted Jewish communities. in Spain and France, startling by the standards of the time at least. Remember, this, this was a time whenever I looked at the Jews as, as some cursed nation. Remember, as late as the 1930s, the socialist fascist government of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Roosevelt refused entry to Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany, effectively delivering them to death. And that was a normal thing in the 1930s. And yet reformed nations in the, six, in the 1500s openly invited Jews to come to their nations. Oliver Cromwell's opponents spread the rumor of him being of Jewish descent on account of his policy of open borders of which the Jews took the greatest advantage. One of the original drives for establishing colonies in the New World was to make them cities of refuge, as the story of both the pilgrims and the Puritans in Massachusetts reveals. 
Emma Lazarus' sentiment in her new Colossus poem was the sentiment inherited from previous generations of her Jewish ancestors who found refuge in the Reformed lands. And let me read it to you again, in case you've forgotten what America stood for. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore sent these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The city of refuge concept, of course, was closely related to the most important of all reformed social concepts, <clears throat> the city on a hill. It would take another lecture to explain why it is the most important concept of the Reformation and how it influenced the founding of America and how we lost it. The short, in short, the, the idea of building a society that exhibits God's justice and mercy was central to the teachings and the practice of the Reformers and their spiritual heirs. But if the Reformed communities would become a city on a hill, beacons of God's liberty and justice for all, it was natural to expect that the glory and the honor of the nations would be brought in this city, Gen uh, Revelation 21, 24 through 26. And the huddled masses yearning to breathe free will be eager to settle in that shining city on a hill. A city on a hill whose gates are closed is, a dungeon, is the dungeon of a tyrant, not the celebration halls of the King of Kings. The gates of the Reformed communities, therefore, were to remain open to everyone who had the heart and the will to come in. The history of the last four centuries supplied abundant proofs for the success of this view. Contrary to the foolish fears of modern American Christians, open gates don't attract criminals and lazy people. It is the moral, industrious entrepreneurial type of person who is willing to undertake to move to a better place for better safety and better opportunities for his children. The argument is the same as the argument about gun control. When guns are banned, only the criminals have guns. When guns are allowed, to every criminal there's a number of honest people who can shoot back. In the same way, when borders are shut down, only criminals cross them. When borders are open to every criminal, there are multitudes of honest workers and entrepreneurs who want to come in and settle. The Reformed communities who opened their gates for the flood of immigrants, Christian or non-Christian, prospered abundantly within a generation after having been the economic backwater of Europe. Protestant Netherlands, the, the greatest example of all, profited so greatly from the uncontrolled immigration that the country that in 1540 was a few fishing villages in the swamps of a corner of the Habsburg's possessions within a generation by 1580 was the economic, social and military miracle of the world and in the course of the next hundred years they took on three great empires and defeated them This little country. It was this concept that was at the foundation of the early colonial views in America concerning immigration. The colonists opposed immigration restrictions as a violation of their liberties. The royal ban on colonizing the Appalachians and beyond the Appalachians 
at the time, the king had a ban on people moving to the Appalachian Mountains, was opposed, ignored, and disobeyed by the early American colonists in, in large numbers. In a sense, well, not in a sense, but actually most of the soldiers in the Continental Army of George Washington were, by the modern status lingo, illegal immigrants. Hello, a land of illegal immigrants. You know, if they were decent people, if they were moral people, they would have obeyed the immigration laws of the king, wouldn't they? Right? We can't understand the 4th of July and the meaning of the American Revolution if we do not consider the fact that these people violated the royal laws because they believed them to be unjust. And one of those laws was the ban on immigration. Amazingly, the proof for it is in the very Declaration of Independence, which conservatives claim to honor as one of the founding documents of these United States. He has endeavored, this is a grievance against the king, he has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of, for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their immigration, and raising the conditions for new appropriations of lands. Modern conservatives pay lip service to these words and then turn around and demand from the today's government the same thing that the colonists fought against. Now this is called intellectual schizophrenia. Immigration was considered vital to the vision of a city on a hill. The patriots, and especially the Calvinist Presbyterian crowd, wanted not simply immigration. They wanted laws to encourage immigration. The U.S. Constitution didn't give any branch of the federal government the right to control immigration. Anybody who tells you the government has the right to control immigration because it's a constitutional prerogative to the government is lying to you or is ignorant. It did charge Congress to pass laws to regulate naturalization, that is the right of foreigners to political suffrage. It was understandable. Immigration was a right, a religious necessity for a city on a hill, but political franchise was a privilege. Not everyone could vote, but everyone could, everyone could come and prosper. And indeed, between the War of Independence and 1882, there was no major attempt by Congress to control or regulate immigration. In compliance with the Constitution, Congress passed in 1790, a year after the forming of the United States under a single federal government, the Naturalization Act of 1790, regulating not immigration but the right to citizenship. Much can be said about this act and its discriminatory character. It allowed an immigrant to receive citizenship after a stay of two years, but it excluded blacks, American Indians, and Asians, as well as slaves and indentured servants. Actually, the other day I was told by a 
by a, a Hispanic brother that his, his grandmother remembered when, when she was going to vote. She had to put her, put, put her arm against a, a brown paper bag, and if she was darker than that paper bag, she, wouldn't allow, she, she wasn't allowed to vote. That's about 100 years ago. That's discriminatory, I understand it. There were reasons for it, but at least the law did not limit immigration. She was not stopped from coming here. She was stopped from voting. Okay. And actually, what do you change by voting? <clears throat> it was amended multiple times between 1790 and 1921 to fix some problems, or actually create new problems. Essentially, though, it did not limit nor control immigration. The old Christian reform concept of city of refuge remained at the foundations of America's immigration policy for about a century. In fact, in a few cases, immigration was actually encouraged. And in the 1840s and the 1850s, while the, while the conflict between the northern and the southern states was forming and picking up speed, both sides worked frantically to attract immigrants from Europe. By, not, by 1860, the North had obvious advantage over the South in numbers. The South had failed to attract enough immigrants to preserve the demographic balance. <clears throat> in comparison, during the Revolution, the bulk of the population was in the South. Remember, Virginia was a central state in the Revolution. The influx of the influx of immigrants provided the North not only with enough human resources to man the northern armies, but also with the necessary labor force to man the growing industrial base. Not to mention that more immigrants meant more people with new and daring ideas, entrepreneurial spirit, and the skills to organize production to levels unheard of before. To win the war, the North needed to enlist only about 20% of its adult male population against 80% and more of the population of the South. And significantly, the North came out of that war much better developed industrially. <clears throat> By, in 1870, the United States was already the economic superpower of the world due to this unique combination of Puritan work ethic and unrestricted immigration bringing in an abundance of labor and talent. Unfortunately for the North and for the U.S. in general, the mid-19th century was also the time the first trade unions were started. In the crowded cities of the Northeast, their influence picked up almost immediately, and by the 1880s, the individual, fragmented, isolated trade union groups started uniting for action. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not completely against trade unions. Part of their struggle was legitimate, economic, providing the individual worker some kind of leverage for his protection. That's okay with me. They started and organized mutual assistance foundations, training courses, retirement funds, etc., in addition to collective bargaining. Part of their struggle, though, was political and therefore immoral. And their first target in their political struggle were not their employers, not the banks that provided the capital for growth, but the competition in the face of foreign immigrants, mainly Chinese. That was the first political target of the trade unions, immigrants. 
By 1882, two laws were passed to exclude Chinese workers from the labor market in the U.S. The argument raised by the unionist activists and the first Marxists in the United States... Did you hear that? ...was the familiar argument used today by conservatives. The Chinese take our jobs, lower the wages, and are unable to assimilate in and adapt to our culture. This was originally a Marxist argument. And today we just put it back in the microwave, got it out, and now it's a conservative argument, just a little warmed over. <clears throat> Next time you hear a conservative using that argument against Mexicans, keep in mind that he's mindlessly repeating an old and worn-out socialist and Marxist slogans. That's what they're doing. There were some legitimate moral concerns... Though, given the fact that the Chinese coolies were not free individuals who migrated on their own accord, but actual slaves, bought in China from their feudal masters by agents of the American railroad companies. Now, after the war between the states, such slavery was embarrassing for, for a government that pretended to have exterminated slavery. <clears throat> so, uh, after one law was passed for banning Chinese immigrants, another law was passed that forbade the import of workers for any kind of business from any region in the world, which ended the practice of many industrialists of German origin of shipping hundreds of workers from Germany and Austria for their factories. Anybody has a Kohler toilet in their bathroom? That's what Mr. Kohler used to do, import German workers. None of these laws, however, banned an individual foreigner from entering the country and settling, settling in it. Now, these laws did have some negative economic effect, mainly on the railroads and the mining industry, which used imported labor extensively. Uh, at the time, those were government uh, conglomerates anyway, so I'm not really shedding a tear for them. But. Uh, but, uh, you know, but there were no immigration laws. Immigration was left to the states, and since the states competed for immigrants, there was no limitation. The old religious principles that America was founded upon, combined with the economic incentives of the industrial age, made America completely open its borders. It's important to note that the Supreme Court decision of 1892, that the U.S. is a Christian nation, Remember that? We like to repeat that mindlessly. was made in reference to an immigration case where a church, the Church of the Holy Trinity, challenged one of these laws, these restrictive employment laws, and won. It is ironic that one of the most important statements of the Supreme Court in the history of, of America was made concerning an immigration case. But the war between the states only accelerated the centralization of power in the government in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> and by the 1880s, the federal government was already an active agent of its own, ready to overstep even more boundaries. Remember what was the immediate occasion for the war between the states? What was it? States' rights. States' rights, but there was, an, uh, there was a specific occasion that they started shooting against each other. When was the trigger pulled? When the federal government wanted to collect the tariffs. 
Okay, that was the, the, the immediate occasion where, where the first shots were exchanged in South Carolina. By 1882, some smart people in Washington had realized that immigration was a huge, untapped source of revenue. Well, since people were the main import commodity of America, there should be a tariff on it. Thus was passed in 1882, the first true immigration act in the United States. 1882, a hundred years after the revolution. And the main purpose of it was the collection of a hit tax of 50 cents for every immigrant. It was 1882. 50 cents was not a small amount of money. To make it not so blatant that the act was centered on collecting revenue for the federal government, some pro forma stipulations were added declaring certain persons called LPC, likely public charge, to be ineligible for immigration. Convicts, lunatics, idiots and persons unable to care for themselves. Now how, now, how does the government decide who is a lunatic? I don't know. I mean, today, they, they, I mean, some government officials will look at this, this gathering here and they say, well, we're lunatics, right? I would say everybody in Washington, D.C. is a lunatic, but... Paying homage to the Christian values of the past, the act specifically stated that the category convict excludes those who were convicted for political offenses, reflecting the traditional American belief that the United States is a haven for those persecuted by foreign tyrants. The main purpose of the act, of course, was the creation of the first massive federal immigration bureaucracy and the creation of a source of revenue for the federal government that couldn't be challenged or influenced by the states. The Immigration Policy Administration created by that act became the forefather of many modern agencies, from the Immigration and Naturalization Service to the Department of Homeland Security and the Transport Security Administration. That was the start in 1882. The head tax was increased from 50 cents in 1882 to $8 in 1917, and that was in a period of gold standard and a deflation of the currency by 7% total for that period. So while the currency deflated for that period, prices went down by 7%, the immigration tax, head tax, was raised for, from 50 cents to $8. Now listen to this. For most of those 35 years, only the revenues from immigration, if we exclude all other revenues of the federal government at the time, only the revenues from immigration exceeded abundantly all the costs for running the federal government. The immigrants were the cash cow for the statist agenda of Washington, D.C. We can easily say that immigrants paid for America's participation in, for America's war against, America's wars against Spain, World War I, and World War II. Your grandfathers and grandmothers paid for those wars. Since the law was rather focused on revenue than controlling immigration, it did little to restrict it. For the next 30 years, the population of the United States 
for 30 years would triple from 30 million to over 100 million population. Triple for 30 years. Imagine the United States had a population of 250 million in, the, in, in, in Reagan times. Imagine if it, if it had grown to 750 million today. That's what those Americans ex experienced. This was an unprecedented situation in history. Never before and never after has any nation seen such wild demographic growth. In contrary to the foolish prejudices of modern conservatives, this unprecedented growth coincided with the period of the wildest economic growth in the history of the world. Never before and never after has a nation seen such steep rise to economic prosperity and domination over the world economy. There was a problem, though. And the problem was that the influx of immigrants at the rate of two per one, two immigrants per one citizen, created a great diversity in the population that was undesirable. Undesirable for whom? Undesirable for a small political and intellectual elite from New England, the Yankee land, who had adopted the ideas of Darwin and the French racist Gobineau, praised by Marx and Engels for his racist studies, and had made their goal to deepen and expand the political centralization of the United States as a means to ensuring the survival of the white race against the inferior races. The ideologue of the new immigration policies was one Prescott F. Hall, one of the most evil minds in our American history. A Boston lawyer. Uh, stop here, Boston lawyer. I mean, you, you know, he's an evil guy. Who in 1894 became the founder and the first secretary of the Immigration Restriction League. A short but comprehensive review of all his interests and views must be presented here in order to understand how we got our first restrictive immigration laws. Hall's views were a crude early form of everything that would later become the official ideology of the National Socialist Party in Germany. He was a believer in the occult and was also a member of the American Society for Psychical Research devoted to the study of paranormal phenomena. There was a guy who liked to communicate with demons, to, get, to give you the biblical definition of it. He also believed in genetic determinism, that the culture of a nation is determined by its genes. Therefore, genetic pollution would lead to cultural and social degeneration. Anybody here Nazi Germany here? He was therefore a proponent of eugenics, the pseudoscience which led to legislation for forced sterilization of certain classes in the American society. Only in Georgia, 60,000 people were sterilized until 1950 because of this policy. He viewed the perfect society as a genetically homogenous society in which a superior race of genetically pure humans establish a culture corresponding to their genetic constitution, unpolluted by other genetic constitutions. He was also an ardent proponent of centralized 
government education. Surprise, surprise. An admirer of Horace Mann and an activist for the National Education Association. Oh, here's the father of your immigration laws, conservatives. He was also an evolutionist, believing in the struggle for survival as the major motive of all social relations and conflicts. He believed that the world would become richer if the superior racial character becomes dominant. Here's a quote from him, from his essays on immigration, if you don't believe me. They say you can find his, all his works are free online. Listen to this. The Mediterranean races, unlike the Nordic, look to the state for progress instead of to individual enterprise. It's the race, you know, is the genetics. The Semitic consciousness, as expressed in men like St. Paul, Spinoza, Marx, and Bergson, is the champion of abstract universals as contrasted with Nordic concreteness. But it's all genes again. A nation of many races has no longer one soul, one spirit. Its integrity can be destroyed not only through heredity, but by crossbreeding, uh, uh, through heredity by crossbreeding, but in a slower way, by a change in the environment through the mere presence of alien elements. The mere presence of Mexicans will pollute, you know, our superior white culture. Gobineau, he quotes Gobineau, the same French, French racist that Marx quoted from. Long ago pointed out that the doctrine that all men are equal is announced only by mixed races. It's ironic, of course, that a hundred years after he wrote this, the only truly socialist indoctrination centers teaching only abstract universals in the world would be the universities of the Yankee land, manned almost entirely by Nordic professors. And ironically, as he was writing these lines, the Swedish Social Democratic Party was being formed, later to become the ruling party in Sweden. For more than two generations, turning the Nordic nation into a herd dependent on the state for their progress. You want to see real socialism in the world today? Go to the Nordic nations. At the same time, a generation of Jewish Semitic professors were laying the foundations for the Austrian economic school. The most thorough defense of individualism and private initiative ever written in the history of mankind. If Theodore Roosevelt was the American fascist among the politicians, and he was, I challenge you to read my friend Joel McDermott's book, Theodore Roosevelt, the American Fascist. Prescott Hall was his ideologue. And the public political voice for the Immigration Restriction League was Henry Cabot Lodge, a friend of Theodore Roosevelt, a fervent American nationalist. In 1921 and 1924, two immigration laws were passed, the Emergency Quota Act, and the National Origins Act, which introduced quotas, and with the quotas, introduced full control over immigration by the federal government, in violation of the Constitution, which gave Congress power only over the naturalization of foreigners. The laws were deeply racist. 
the quotas were actually percentage quotas for different genetic regions of the world. Homogenizing America genetically was seen by the statists at the time as the necessary prerequisite to establishing centralist, centralized government over all of America. People of different genetics would only create diff uh, confusion and will thwart the efforts towards more centralization. If you have read the novel Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and you've got to read that novel, it was inspired in part by the official political ideology in the United States in the 1930s, influenced by the views of Prescott Hole and his fellow ideologists. This novel describes exactly the kind of world Hole would want. The other influence was a British guy, Herbert George Wells, the famous British science fiction writer who had the same views on races and immigration as Hull. We also need to emphasize that Wells was a committed Fabian socialist. And the Fabian society was originally Darwinian and racist to the core and anti-immigration. Another connection there would be Margaret Sanger, another committed Fabian socialist, racial supremacist, and activist for abortion as the means for exterminating the undesirable races. Such was the origin of the first real immigration laws in the United States. It didn't come from Christianity. It came from enemies of God. And after the defeat of Hitler's Germany, racially-based immigration laws became an embarrassment for America. So right after the war, work started on a change in the immigration policies. The change was not meant to return the United States to the original formula of open borders, though. Once the federal government grabs a certain level of power, it never relinquishes it. The attempt was to find the new formula, formula for continuing federal control over immigration in the post-Hitler world. The resulting Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952 was just as much a violation of the Constitution uh, in, in that Congress affirmed its control over immigration, which was not one of its constitutional prerogatives. Immigration, again, was left to whom? To the states and to the people. Only naturalization was left to Congress. Now, this law retained the, the national origins formula. In fact, uh, President Truman imposed a veto on it because it, it, it still kept the, the, uh, the formula. Truman was actually anti-racist, very strongly anti-racist, so he didn't want the, the, the law, but they overturned him in Congress. A bipartisan effort in Congress overturned his veto. veto. The ideology was changed from racist genetic to fascist collectivist. Now, the previous law still regarded people as individuals. Now, genetic constitution, but still individuals. Now, this law looked at them as members of cultural blocks, cultural collectives, that are unable to be re-educated culturally because of their belonging to a certain collective. Okay? In his defense of the law, the Democrat lawyer, that's enough, I just Democrat lawyer and Senator Pat McCarran said the following. However, we have in the United States today hardcore 
indigestible blocks which have not become integrated into the American way of life, but which, on the contrary, are its deadly enemies. By the way, if you're wondering what blocks he's talking about, he's talking about the Dutch up in Michigan. This is how you know a socialist or a liberal or a fascist. They never think in terms of individuals. They always think in terms of blocks. Exactly the opposite to what original, the, the, uh, that original American spirit that gave the individuals the right to self-determination and did not demonize them for belonging to any group by choice. No wonder McCarran expressed such sentiments. His nickname, listen to this, his nickname was the senator from Madrid. Where's Madrid? In Spain, it's the capital of Spain. At the time, Spain was under the regime of the fascist militarist dictator Francisco Franco. And McCarran was a fervent admirer of Franco. In fact, there are signs that before that, he was an admirer of Mussolini, but he couldn't say that in 1952. <clears throat> he was convinced that Franco's system of forcing cultural uniformity on a whole nation is the superior social and political system. He spent much of his career lobbying for foreign aid to Franco's regime. Now. My question is, if the system is superior, why did it need aid in the first place? You know, we may ask. The Act of 1952 expanded the federal bureaucracy, for it included a provision for admitting immigrants with special skills. And it also legislated ban on immigration for people who were fellow travelers of communist parties around the world. Now, I'm not for communists, but that meant that whole new departments were needed now to be able to determine what skills a potential immigrant had. I mean, imagine a bureaucrat who's never worked in his life an honest job determining what skills you have. And whether his sympathies lied with some communist party, because fellow traveler was defined legally as uh, one who sympathizes with a, com with a communist party. Well, how do you read the mind of a person to know what he sympathizes with? Now, if he's a member of the Communist Party, yes. But how do you read his mind? So a whole new bureaucracy was created. This openly fascist period in the U.S. immigration policy lasted for 13 years, when another group of Democrats, Emmanuel Seller, Philip Hart, and you will recognize the third name, Ted Kennedy, gave the start to the last socialist period, the period that continues until now, and its policies are eagerly supported by modern so-called conservatives and many churchgoers in the United States. It was entirely based on the ideology of Lyndon Johnson's great society and the ideas of the American liberal political elite for social engineering. 
the Immigration and Nationality Services Act of 1965 removed the national origins formula, so genetics is not there, was not there anymore, but it affirmed the firm grip of the federal government over immigration. The ideology of adapting to the culture became the ruling ideology of the United States immigration policy. But what American culture was, was left entirely to unelected federal bureaucrats to decide. How do you feel about letting a bureaucrat decide what American culture is? Well, that's what the immigration law did. The act also removed the decision locus for immigration admissions from American soil to the U.S. consulates around, consulates around the world. You see this? Now, the bureaucrats are not only deciding what American culture is, but they are not here on American soil anymore. They're somewhere in some consulates around the world. Okay? Understandably, the immigration bureaucrats are now safe from any oversight and any challenges from American taxpayers. So now, unelected bureaucrats in the U.S. determined what immigrants, what, what immigrants the government wanted, and unelected bureaucrats outside the United States decided which individual immigrants would reach the U.S. soil. Eventually, the consulates were given the power to control not only immigration, but also business and personal travel as well. Thing that the Constitution never even dreamed about. What just a generation before was ridiculed by American journalists in Nazi Germany, the obsession with your papers, please, became the established policy of the federal government concerning non-U.S. citizens. And it would take another generation for the policy to develop and become the established policy for U.S. citizens as well. Try to go anywhere without your papers today as a U.S. citizen. As any socialist policy, it didn't work. Immigrants continued to use loops in the system to arrive, and by the 1980s, America had millions of illegal immigrants. You know, like I said, immigration restrictions work just like gun bans and prohibitions against alcohol and drugs. An unbiblical and unconstitutional law was not working. Who would have thunk? By the 1980s, the law was under severe criticism by many conservative politicians, including Ronald Reagan. In 1981, a few months into his first term, President Reagan delivered a special statement on immigration, announcing his goal of immigration reform, which would return America, America back to her original purpose of city on a hill. His phrase was a shining city, and he declared the following. Illegal immigrants in considerable numbers have become productive members of our society and are a basic part of our workforce. Those who have established equities in the United States should be recognized and accorded legal status. Amnesty. This is Ronald Reagan speaking. In the 1980s, it was the liberals in this country who were fretting about immigrants destroying our culture. If you told a conservative at the time that immigration was dangerous to the culture, they would laugh you out of the room. 
immigration to conservatives was a proof for the superiority of the American culture. Why would anyone leave their miserable conditions and come to America with the purpose of replicating the same cultural conditions here? Why wouldn't they come to have better life in this new superior culture? The Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, though, did not meet all of Reagan's expectations. It did give amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants, as Reagan wanted, but it also placed burdens on and limited the freedom of employers this time. Now we're limiting not only immigrants, but now we're limiting American citizens. What a surprise. They were now banned from hiring illegal immigrants and were under obligation to report the legal status of their employees. Now the employers act as unpaid agents of the state. Do you hear that? Okay. For, for a law that is wicked. The reason may lie in the fact that the law's architects were two extremely liberal legislators, the Democrat Romano Mazzoli and the Republican Alan K. Simpson. And Simpson, by the way, in the 80s, was an outspoken advocate for uh, the legalization of abortion and sodomy. After the end of his political career, Ronald Reagan expressed his original vision in the following words. Listen to this. This is Ronald Reagan again speaking. I have spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall... You, you can just hear Ronald Reagan speaking here. A tall, proud city built on rocks, stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports, free ports, humming, and that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. Somewhere between 1989 and today, something happened to the conservative American mind. That mind was brainwashed to accept as a conservative value a policy that has always been a racist, liberal, fascist, socialist, statist policy restricting the movement of individuals for the purposes of the state. And in the next lecture, we will see what the situation is today, what our views are today, how they compare to the Bible, and what arguments are used by conservatives in support of it. Thank you all.